You're listening to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. Today, I sat down with food director Carla Music and senior associate food editor Claire Saffitz to talk about all those foods that we grew up eating and we really, really loved. And then at some point when you become an adult, you're like, wait a minute, why don't I make that? My mom made it and my dad made it. Darn it, I'm going to learn how to make it. And you know what? Now we are. And we're, we're testing these recipes, these sort of these classic recipes from the 70s and 80s. So let's do this thing. We are talking nostalgia foods with Claire Saffitz and Carla Music. Guys, my contention is that the most potent ingredient in any recipe is nostalgia. If you ate it growing up, you think it is the best dish ever. Like, oh my God, my mom made this amazing so-and-so. Even if it wasn't that amazing, if your mom made it, in your mind, it is. Carla, is that fair to say? Well, my mom was a great cook, so... <laughs> Wait, are you trying to say she's better than Maxine? Well, no, I wouldn't say that, but I would say she was a much better cook than her mother. She oh. actually taught herself how to cook because the food wasn't so great. Wow. Yeah. But, but didn't she grow up where? What's her background? She grew up in New Jersey. Ah, yeah. Jersey. Mm-hmm. Jewish, Italian? No, no. she's Italian. We're 100%. <laughs> every, every week I, I'm like, you sure you're not Jewish, Carla? <laughs> uh, well, that's got, so she's a self-made Italian gal from Jersey. Correct. Correct. And and Claire, what about you? Where did your parent, mom grow up? She grew up in Baltimore. Oh, Baltimore. Jewish. Jewish. Good cook? Very good cook. Yeah. Cooked every dinner I had growing up. We all sat together at the dinner table every night, 6.30. In my household, Maxine Rappaport, nay Barzak from uh, West Dallas, Wisconsin, was a heck of a cook also. And of course, we're not mentioning our fathers because I don't. I know my dad didn't cook. Did your guys? My dad did cook and he had his specialty dishes. Yeah. But it wasn't, like it wasn't like every night. He no. would... A lot of times he would just cook things that he wanted to eat that my mom didn't want to make or eat. So yeah, Frank Lolly was into the he called it garbage pasta. If my oh. mom was out of town, he would take <laughs> all the leftovers out, and he thought that if you if you just added cream at the end, it didn't really matter. It was it that's, would be good. That's, that's pretty good advice. But he's actually. Tur- he's turned into a good cook. He's real proud of his eggs these days. All right. So what we're going to do on today's episode is we're going to kind of do a little uh, roundtable here where we're going to talk about. Dishes we grew up with, and then the sort of the present day incarnations of them, and, and how we can make them maybe even better than our mom did. Um, I walked into the test kitchen the other day, and I saw in the corner of my eye this crazy like casserole dish with these. It looked like some like Frank Gehry sculpture with these weird vertical golden brown things waving, and I was like, "What the heck is that?" And it was I learned it was tuna casserole, and those were like potato chips on end and flecked with herbs and it was gorgeous and I was like that is not the tuna casserole I remember my dad making growing up he made one dish and it was tuna casserole and I would never I wouldn't even like look at the stuff but this was gorgeous so wh- where did where did this come from and and what what is in this tuna casserole it's 2. a pretty 0. funny it's a pretty funny story actually because Andy Baragani whose parents are Persian developed these recipes and I didn't know when I asked him to work on casseroles that he had never in his life had one. It was just not <laughs> something he ever had. So he's looking and nodding, okay, tuna casserole, wow. And and he had to kind of go figure it out. And so that was his riff on it. It's really all the same ingredients in a tuna casserole. So it's got the creamy sauce, it's got mushrooms, it's got tuna, but he upgraded every ingredient. So, so, walk, so walk us through it. So how, how do you make this new tuna casserole? So you start by sauteing leeks and some mushrooms. I'm looking at Claire because we both were just talking about this. And uh, you make a velouté out of that. So there's a little bit of flour, chicken stock, and it's like a bechamel, but it's made with stock. And then he added a little bit of cream, which g- gives it nice richness. I think a lot of times um, it 
could just be with milk and cheese. He ended up doing, doing the stock, the cream, and cheddar. And then the key thing also was he really he used the egg noodles, the curly egg noodles, which are typical. Mm, yes. The Mullers, I think, is what we get up here, the Pennsylvania Dutch. Un, um, un, unimpeachable, I would say. They really are perfect, but you really have to undercook them. I mean, because I they because they bake further they bake, when they're in yeah, the casserole. Yeah, it's like mac and cheese, same thing. Once it's in with that kind of liquidy sauce, mm-hmm. which you need a lot of liquid so that it's creamy after baking, the the noodles often just soak up too much and then they're mushy. And I think that's one of the key like things that people really don't like about tuna casseroles is just all one texture. Mushiness. And then what do you do? And then you add your tuna, which Andy used um, oil-packed tuna rather than just a water-packed. So the nice... Oil-packed Italian tuna, which just has more texture. It's not going to flake into those tiny little bits. So it's all the same ingredients. It's just the a little n- bit better. It's just the nicest version. Are... So you have great texture in the finished thing. So like the oil-packed, those are some of those like imported Italian yeah. cans, but it's still canned tuna. Yeah, you'll yeah. you'll find it exactly where the anchovies and the capers are. Is usually if it's not in your tuna aisle, then that's where it's going to be. So you mix it all together. Yeah. With the noodles and everything. Oh yeah. And a kind of parboiled noodles, not cooked all the way through. Mix it all together, pour it in a casserole, Correct. and then I thought this was really cool. You sort of insert the potato chips standing upright, correct? Right, exactly. So we we kept referring to it as a potato chip graveyard, kind of. <laughs> yeah, like tombstones. Get, yeah, they're like tombstones. Um, so you pour it into the casserole, you upend all your potato chips, and that is another key thing that often there people do use potato chips or breadcrumbs to give that crunchy layer and you need yeah. that. Um, but that was his nice take on that. Instead of crushing them up into crumbs, he left them whole so you get like nice big bites of them. As they always say, you eat with your eyes first. And and then you also had some, was it minced uh, dill it on top? It was dill. Dill. And so you had the green, you had the golden brown potato chips, you had the golden yumminess of the casserole. So, But then how does it compare to the, the tuna casserole of the 70s with the can of mushroom soup Campbell's mushroom soup and the bumblebee tuna and stuff was it was it that much better in your mind see I didn't grow up on this either <laughs> is that what your dad would use did he use cream of mushroom oh yeah, yeah yeah for someone who never had it and is into the idea of it like I didn't grow up eating that but that's something at a certain point I was like I should probably make my children tuna casserole because that's the thing that you eat um this is the best possible most delicious version like yeah. it hits all the same notes, but it's just really good. Well, it actually, yeah, looks gorgeous, smells gorgeous. Um, I, of course, still did not eat it because I just like I can't. It's it haunts me. Although <laughs> you had, you brought an interesting point up, um, <clears throat> which I thought was good casserole advice about the amount of liquid you need in a casserole. We also have a recipe for BA's best macaroni and cheese up on the website, which I make all the time now. And you start off grating some some garlic and onions and sauteing that. Then you mix it, you make a like a bechamel sort of sauce, et cetera, with the cheese and, and whatnot and the milk. Um, it's an astounding amount of liquid that you then mix in with the with the par cooked pasta. And you're like, there's no way this is gonna work. This is way too wet. But after it cooks for 40 minutes or so, and then it cools a little bit. Yep. You actually want it much more liquidy than you think. To- it tightens up a lot. I mean, the cheese will tighten up, and so will that that flour-based sauce. Yeah, and and the, and the, and the noodles the absorb pasta a ton. Absorb. Yeah, so it's like always, when you're making mac and cheese or another casserole, it's always more liquid than you think. And also the other good advice I, I felt uh, that I, you always read, but you never sort of heed is let it sit on the counter before you dig in. Like You you don't want it piping hot because then that oozes out everywhere. You want it to sort of like come back into itself a little bit. Um, all right, so that's tuna casserole. Claire, number two, you mentioned something about Duchess potatoes. Yes. Which sounds very fancy. It is very fancy. Growing up, this was like a special occasion thing. We would 
we would get to request special birthday dinners, and this was uh. something we all asked for. We wanted our mom to make. Um, it was sort of a wintertime thing. Uh, we She calls them Duchess potatoes. They are commonly known as twice-baked potatoes. Mm. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Twice-baked potatoes makes it sound like I'm going to, you I know. I'm going to the bar. Yeah. <laughs> so so explain. How do, how, do you, how do you make your duchess potatoes? Right. These are, you start with russet potatoes. You want a fluffy, starchy potato, so nothing waxy like a Yukon Gold. So a classic uh, russet potato. They get baked, poke a couple holes in them. My mom would put them directly on the rack yep. in a hot oven. Um, and then the skins kind of dry out as the inside steams. They get really fluffy. And then every time she would make them, she would try to cut them when they were way too hot uh, <laughs> and kind of yes. like burn her hands a little bit. It's astounding the amount of steam that escapes from a baked potato. Yes. Yeah. Like, hmm. Yes. Um, and she would always make a lot. I mean, I grew up in a family of with five people, but she would make like nine potatoes because we all ate way more than I think the average family ate. So you could just I, fight over the I would one. just, I would, why not just make 10? So yeah, right, She's right. like, I'll only have one. That's a classic mom right. move. Everybody or we'd have, no, no, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. Or we'd have one left over, but like it wouldn't make it in the fridge because we would eat it as we were clearing the, the table, exactly. which right. is so, a common so you, thing. You bake potato, you split them in half lengthwise all, in half. all the way through. Yes. And then then you scoop out the, what yes. do you do? Separate the halves and you scoop out the insides with a large spoon and you don't want to, you want to be kind of gentle so you don't tear the skins too much because all of that potato is going to go back into the mm. skin the second time around. But first you basically make like a whipped or mashed potato mixture. So she would always add butter and milk. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, when I make them now, I like to do a version with sour cream or some chives or something. And mixed in. Mixed in yeah. with the potato. So What about cheese? Do you do cheese at all or no? Not cheese, but no. sometimes a little bit on top, oh. but not in with the potato yeah, yeah. mixture. But she would also roast garlic in the oven. Ooh. Roasted garlic felt very big in the 90s. Very big. Uh, she would just throw some in a little Pyrex bowl covered with some olive oil and foil on top oh. and roast that in the oven for in about an hour. Bowl. Yep. Wow. And then she, you would mix that in with as you're whipping the potatoes? Yes. And I, my mom liked to use a hand mixer, which violates every rule oh of, my po- God. of mashed potato making. But when you make gnocchi, you can do it in a stand mixer. Oh, right. Yeah. No, I mean, you it, can't. Yes, is, you uh, can. No, you cannot. Go over to Montrachet with Remy Levand in 1999. <sighs> we were making gnocchi with stand mixer. Yeah, well, my mom was well, definitely is, channeling that. Is Montrachet still open? No. No, but Remy's yeah. still working. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, all right, so she's <laughs> yeah. at the stand mixer. She's yeah. whipping the potatoes. At hand mixer. Hand she would mixer. just go with oh, the two, the two beaters. Yeah. Also, my mom's name is Saucy, which I wanted to share. Literally. Her real name is Sharon, but... Her whole life, everyone's called her saucy. So was she a fan of um, History of the World Part One? No, no, no idea. Don't don't get saucy with me, Ben. <laughs> that line, Mel Brooks. Anyways, I'll share that with her. Uh, this would be a separate podcast. <laughs> Anyways, um, okay, so you'd whip them together. Yes. You you now said you might throw in chives or or something. So else. Yeah, yeah, sour cream, chives, something to kind of enrich the potatoes, give it something savory. So it could be chives or caramelized onions or roasted yeah. garlic, mm. as she would do. I like that. And now, would you would she use like a fancy pastry bag to pipe them back in, or she just spoon them back in? Saucy was not down with a pastry bag. (laughs) Dinner had to get on the table. So you just use a big spoon and then kind of like do big heaping mounds of the potato back into the skin. So you always Mm. have like a skin or two left over because you wanted to put more potato back into that, back into the skins than came out. So that would be something I would probably eat. Would you, you could bake the skins also as they get crispy. Would you now, does Claire Saffitz, do you use a pastry bag to look all like French Culinary Institute or something? I have been known to do that. (laughs) And real Duchess potatoes, the classic French dish Mm -hmm. Duchess potatoes uses, you have to use like the star tip, make a little mounds of potato. 
So what what typically if it was your birthday and you were having the Duchess potatoes, what would the main course be that they would be accompanying? Probably steak. Mm. We definitely did steak yeah. and potatoes a lot growing up. It was also the nineties when carbs were good. I feel I feel I feel like you grew up on the set of Anchorman or something. <laughs> <laughs> it was the Midwest, it was the nineties, pasta was good. Life, we loved it. <laughs> life was good. It was very good. Some Quavassier for uh, cocktails afterwards. No. No. Sorry. I'll just stop. Um, <laughs> all right, Carla. Moving on. So all right, so Dutch and potatoes, thank you. And yeah. wait, there's a recipe on online, correct? Kind of, sort we of. We have well, on our site, we yeah. have a twice-baked potatoes. I'll just add as a final note, what made them Duchess potatoes is they got a sprinkling of paprika on top mm. before they went back oh, into course. the oven and crisp. So that was really, that was the signature. <laughs> All right. If that's not enough carbs, Carla, what do you got coming up next? What's your, what's your nostalgia favorite? So one thing that I think I ate for lunch most weekends and now I cook on regular rotation for my own son is a, a just a classic grilled cheese. Uh, yeah. No messing around, no sourdough bread, no upgrading the thing. It's Pullman bread, it's mayonnaise, and Adam and I disagree well, with like, well, this. First of all, first of all, right, we want this because I think the average person, explain the mayonnaise thing first of all. Like, So the mayonnaise is a magical, I think most people put butter on the outside of a grilled cheese sandwich, which is mm-hmm. a totally acceptable thing to do and completely fine. Um, but mayonnaise is a, it's really a food stylist trick. Um, it has oils in it it has a little bit of egg yolk and so it has a really great caramelization mm-hmm. kind of property so you to will it. spread it on the outside of on each, the outside. each side of the i put it on the inside too because it's just a little bit of flavor <laughs> why not yeah um but the way that it browns in the pan is pretty magical okay but now my question is this do you, so you spread it on the top of one side of the bread you flip it over put it in the pan but are you putting it in a dry pan or is there a little butter already in that pan also a little bit of butter is good. But not a lot. You don't need a lot. You don't need a lot because it's it's really going to self-butter. I also, I'm still, I'm still, I like a good wheat bread, but I, I hear you on the good classic white Pullman. Let's talk cheese because that's also an important thing. What's your cheese policy? It depends who I'm making the grilled cheese for. Okay, if well, it's for me, I mm. love cheddar. Okay. And do you do slices or do you grate it? Because I've heard people grate it. I've never Grating done that before. Grating is great. Because it, it melts more evenly? It does. And it melts more quickly. Mm. So sometimes you'll have the perfectly brown outside of the bread, but the cheese in the middle, you can tell it's just not there yet. All right. And if you're making it for one of your for your boys? It's Munster. Munster? Yep. Wow. Yeah. Cosmo Music is a Munster lover. Interesting. We have in the magazine. It's mag- very melty and it's mild. In the magazine, we have espoused the virtues of American cheese, which I love on a burger. I do not love it on a grilled cheese because I think American plays well when it's on something else when it's mm-hmm. just on its own it's a little too american cheesy in my opinion totally totally um i think cheddar is great i think gruyere is great it depends what you're into you could blend you know two cheeses i've made them with mozzarella i mean yeah All right, you so know if it melts it's it's good to go you're making me hungry and then obviously that's another thing you grew up with you the grilled cheese but then you'd have the campbell's cream of tomato soup on the side and i the loved dip, that the dip was that's just still one of the best things ever. I think the thing about nostalgic foods is that it's the way you grew up eating it. Yes. You know, so you and I, we grew up with different, different fabulous mothers. Mm. And we mm. feel we've. <laughs> <laughs> but we both grew up eating uh, grilled cheese and, and tomato soup. And so will our children. <laughs> All right. So one thing I grew up eating, um, I, I, I grew up not eating tuna casserole, uh, but I did grow up eating once a week, guaranteed, we, it was meatloaf and mashed potatoes night. And my mom would make a meatloaf, three strips of bacon, which we'd all fight for, big bowl of mashed potatoes. And then, like, we always had to, quote, unquote, eat our salad, which was always iceberg lettuce, 
underripe tomatoes and a few cucumbers uh, and some like Thousand Island dressing. I grew up in the 70s. Um, and like, whatever, you just kind of ate the salad. But the meatloaf and mashed potatoes were stupendous. And the weird thing is like, I make a lot of my mom's recipes now. I make her sweet and spicy brisket on the Jewish holidays, which is phenomenal. I make her latkes. I do a lot of things um, that I love. Weirdly, I have never made meatloaf like in my life. And I cook a lot of meat. I make a lot of steaks, I burgers, all that stuff. And I don't, I still don't know, help me out here, because I don't know how do you get the really, because it's not a burger, you know? And it, there's something moist and flavorful, and a meatloaf is a different creature, and I know you're supposed to put breadcrumbs in and eggs in and all that sort of stuff, and it's not meatballs, and like, how, what, what is the deal with meatloaf, and how do you do a good one with the, besides putting bacon on top? It's a really tough question. Actually, it was really hard for us to develop this recipe in the test kitchen. And this we recipe knew being BA's best meatloaf. Yes. I think it's BA's best beef meatloaf. And it looks gorgeous. Yeah. Go online and look at this picture. It's like they you guys braided the the bacon yeah. on top, which is like the best styling move I've ever seen. I'm like, oh my god! It's like with the glazed ketchup and the braided bacon, and like you just see that, and you're like, I'm making that. Pretty classy. But I haven't made it. So right. what the heck? What's the deal? So we really went around and around with this because everybody had very specific memories of what the meatloaf should be. And again, that very specific memory was their mother's meatloaf. It was like, that's the meatloaf. You yeah. don't eat meatloaf like out, you know? Um, it was the one that you grew up on. So we debated mixing beef, pork, and veal, just beef and pork. We tried it both ways. We decided very early on that it needed to have bacon but even whether or not you bake it in a loaf pan or you freeform it on a sheet See, that's pan, an important thing yeah like do you those, want do you want because the loaf pan keeps the, it moister but the free form gets you more crispy on the outside so. and that is exactly oh. why we ended up doing it free form because the loaf pan on the sides you just kind of get that steamy texture yeah, it's yeah, not that no. pleasant it's mm -hmm. all you know you need to have the bacon for sure um and we really did actually in the end treat it like a meatball did you use like bread soaked in milk or you use breadcrumbs or what do you what do you bind we the meat did, with? We did all of those things and in the end I actually pulled on a trick that I learned from Rocco Despirito's mom when, mm. when they had Rocco's Italian American she made all those meatballs and she was like famous. Full, full disclosure you worked with I Rocco. Worked, no yeah. I did I worked yeah. with her and this is how I learned how to make these meatballs and they were really really good but she had a trick um, of putting stock instead of milk because mm -hmm. meatballs are similar people yeah. do the squozing out bread and the milk and the eggs and the thing. I don't think she... squozen is a word. Listen. <laughs> Rocco's mom says it's a word. It's a word. You knew what I meant. Yes. All right. All right. So she had, so her trick was she would add um, chicken stock actually to, to the, to the meat mixture. The meat, but then where are the breadcrumbs? The breadcrumbs were in there as well. But instead of using milk or another kind of liquid, it was chicken stock instead of milk. Interesting. And it's really good. And then there's eggs also? There's eggs also. What do eggs do? Why do you have to add eggs? They that bind. Just, they bind yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, they help keep it. When you, when you slice it, you don't want the meatloaf to crumble. Mm -hmm. You want to have like a nice, yeah. yeah, discreet slice I, it, see, so that the next day you a, can make a meatloaf sandwich. See, there's see? interesting. And then you also have some like some onion and garlic flavoring yeah. in there. So it's interesting. Like uh, you, you had mentioned like a, a little bit looser crumb, which is kind of what I grew up eating. But then I was last year visiting my wife's grandmother in Western Pennsylvania, Yankee. I don't know if she knew saucy or not. Um, <laughs> but her meatloaf was more of that almost creamy texture. Mm. Like it, there was, it seemed like there was a lot of like the white bread soaked in milk mm -hmm. and mushed together, and so there was it was it, it was really, almost like a force meat if you want to get all French about it. Right. Um, but it, it sort of and it was a very different sort of thing. I thought it was delicious. Um, but yeah, it didn't have that crummy sort of text, crumbly texture. You know what I also love when I was growing up, the meatloaf, 
because it was baked in a uh, like in a pan as opposed to a loaf pan, um, around the edges, all the fat would sort yeah. of pull up. But there was also that weird sort of milky yeah. sort of mm-hmm. like fat sort of stuff, and then it would then get kind of caramelized yeah. and like sort of you would reach in there and then throw that in your mashed potatoes and oh. really good. Ooh. And you talked about the glaze too. So yes. the bacon, we also went through kind of should we make our own little ketchup sweet and sour glaze and we tried that and it turns out no you should not you should just use ketchup but we doctored it up with some cider vinegar some brown sugar so just a little taking more tang. The, yeah just taking the flavors of ketchup and just bumping it up a little bit and that makes that really pretty glaze that also gets a little sticky yeah it's really good on the topic of comfort food it has to be heinz ketchup yes. i think that bears repeating I, and I on, on a yeah. burger on on the meatloaf on anything i do not want Fancy ketchup. No, I do not abide by. Anything. I don't there abide no, by it. When no. is it good? Tell great, me one time that a question. homemade ketchup was like better than the Heinz. Never. I just I got don't nothing. believe in it at all. Um, all right, Claire. So uh, round two, um, you got a little pasta dish you want to talk about? Yeah, right? this is probably my earliest food memory: is eating linguine with clam sauce that my dad would make, and this was one of Jeff's specialties that he would make. <laughs> he would tell my mom to leave the kitchen. This was his. He sort of liked to play chef a little bit. Um, he'd make like shrimp etouffee and my mom would just leave. Like, <laughs> goodbye. Whatever. Saucy out. But this was really his specialty and it's something I remember eating as a really young kid, maybe five years old. My parents had a policy that like they didn't make two dinners. So they said like, this is what we want to eat. So mm-hmm. you guys are going to eat it too. That's a good um, policy. Wow. So how, 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 how did Jeff do it and how do you do it? Well, growing up in St. Louis, it was canned clams and clam juice from a jar, which never seemed like, why would you do it any other way? It was pretty easy. And it was delicious, I have to say. Like, I mean, of course, maybe that's my memory of it now. And we would never make it that way now. I would would go out and get fresh clams and open them up at home. Um, But he would basically start in a skillet. Lots of olive oil, lots and lots of garlics, even some red pepper flakes, fewer mm. if it was for kids. Like they'd throw in a bunch. Um, then the clams go in a little bit of, I think right before the clams, he would hit it with a little white wine, reduce that down. Um, the clams would go in, some of the clam juice, reduce that. And then you have in a pot next to that skillet, the pasta is boiling, cook it al dente, transfer it into the skillet. Don't drain it too well because you want some of that pasta water to go sure into do. the skillet too. Always got hit with a little bit of parsley, but like the curly oh, yeah. kind that uh, would like scratch the top oh. of your throat as you swallowed the food. I love it, was, how, it was always curly parsley. I love how everyone of our generation, and you're younger than, well, you're all younger than me, but Carl and I are at least in, we're, in the we're, ballpark. Yeah. Uh, but it's just like uh, nowadays, like, oh, you would, the, the notion of using anything but flat leaf parsley <laughs> is totally anathema. You're like, curly right. parsley? <laughs> you can't even find it. You don't even it, see it in stores I, I anymore. Feel, I feel bad for it. Um, <laughs> So, all right, so then how often do you make it these days? I make it very often. All right, so what's Claire's technique? So always starting with fresh clams. That's the mm-hmm. important thing. And I like a very high clam to pasta ratio. Every bite should have clams in it. So, mm. I, clam, you know, different types of clams have different flavors. I like the big quahog clams because there's a, lot of, there's a lot of meat in them. Do you chop them up? I chop them up. And this then I'll add some little neck clams, the smaller guys... In addition to the cohogs, because wow. it's like if all the clams only come from the clams that are in the shell mm-hmm. right. in the bowl, it's not enough. Mm. So I really like a deep clam flavor. So you'll, so you'll make the cohogs, take them out of the shell, chop them up, mm-hmm. 
and you'll so you'll have you'll have a mixture of chopped clams as well as whole clams yes. in the finished dish. Absolutely fascinating. Interesting. That's but, very uh, yeah. two point Other than that, mm. though, it's really the same. It's I don't I don't think it's a dish that should be too complicated. Yeah, you know I think everything should come together in a skillet. Uh, I've seen people make versions where they open up the raw clams first because they don't want to cook, you know, because they want that fresher clam flavor. It seems like a lot of work. I do think it's one of those dishes where you want dried pasta. Yes. It's not a fresh pasta thing. Don't try to make it fancier than it is. You want a dried pasta that's going to really absorb all of that flavor. And Adam, I have a question and I think I know the answer, but how do you feel about adding cheese? Uh, literally, I mean, I'm, I'm not one of those guys like, oh, you can't have cheese with seafood because whatever, you do what you want. But that never occurred to me. Really? Because growing yeah. up, I would like pile on the grated Parmesan cheese. And was I still, at, even out today. The, out of the green can? It wasn't out of the green can, but it was a pre-grated. It, we yeah. stopped just short of the craft yeah. stuff, which <laughs> I always loved as a kid when I got to have it. Can I say this? So actually, it's interesting. Speaking of the, the can of parm, um, the other day I was making my son like some sort of pasta, like basically cacio pepe, butter and pasta, all that sort of stuff. Um, and we had a, a container of the pre, what do you call the, the grated parm that's super fine? You know, not like shreds, but what, what kind of grated do you call that? Like I don't, finely very, grated, I guess. Yeah, but you Not know, microplaned, you're talking about. Yeah, but it's like, like powder. You, it's like a, right. you know, but mm-hmm. it was, it's fresh, fresh Parmesan. You, I think we bought it someplace like Italy or whatever. So it was like, it was nice. Yeah. But I was like, tossing the pasta in the pan with the butter and this and that. And I was like, oh, my God, this absorbs so much better and sort of becomes creamy and saucy. Whereas sometimes the, the, the bigger shredded stuff you do with the big microplane yeah. can get stuck to the doesn't bottom really of the dissolve. pan. doesn't really dissolve or gets clumpy. This was I was like, this is genius. I, don't, I mean, I love having a nice hunk of Parmesan in the yeah. fridge. But the finely, finely grated stuff is, it's nice. is great for no, sort we of tossing. We were talking about this recently. I can't remember what recipe it was about. But chicken, we had a whole – was it the chicken parm? That's right. And you can get that texture if you use your um, food processor. So take a hunk. You oh, can, really? Yeah, just the regular blade? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just it works throw, really and just well. really hit it. Yep. It's interesting. Like I Because it makes it round instead of sh- flat shreds. Yeah, they yeah. are like beaded. Carl, we got time for one more, and I'm, I'm hoping it's a dessert because I'm really hungry, and I've had all sorts of salty, carby goodness right now, but I need some sugar. Chocolate mousse. Yes. Um, I grew up on it. I loved it. This was like a fancy. I remember having this as a kid at like a fancy dinner. Um, my parents would take us to restaurants. I feel like I grew up underneath a restaurant table, and chocolate mousse, would all, if it was on the menu, I was ordering it. And my mom would also make it at home. In terms of like, you got your chocolate, but then are you using egg whites? Or are you using cream? Or what, what? You know, let's. So talk the technique. recipe that I really love um, is on uh, Bon Appetit as well, and it's just called dark chocolate mousse. Um, and in this recipe, you melt the chocolate, and then you have your and what, egg. And what kind of chocolate? Like what? Percent? A bittersweet. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I really do believe you can use what you like. You yeah. know, I like a nice rich chocolate. And when you add the sugar and the eggs, it yeah. it mellows it out. So I yeah. think you can go with something like seventy two percent. So you melt your chocolate, and then you have egg whites in one area, and you've got egg yolks in the other. You whip the egg yolks with sugar until it's ribbon consistency. I was going to ask you what that mixture oh. is technically. Like just egg yolk whipped with sugar until it's light, and it's, I think the technical term is you're like you're blanch blanching the eggs okay. and sugar together. Cool. Until so you it, do that. You're yeah. like dissolving like, the you. sugar. Yeah. You're making the egg yep. fluffy, but it's also creamy because it's just the yolks. Yep. And then that gets folded into the melted chocolate, yep. and then you have to clean your beaters. But then you beat your egg whites until they're shiny. They're holding 
stiff peaks, but they haven't dried out and started yep. to look that curdly stuff. And then you fold that in until just there could be a couple of streaks remaining. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where that lightness comes from. Mm. So you have the richness from the yolks and the sugar and the chocolate obviously is like velvety and delicious. And the egg white um, will give it lift. And yeah. when you spoon into it, you hear those little bubbles kind of popping. And you see the bubbles. And you see the bubbles. Yeah. And so then you chill it. Um, the recipe online makes eight, which is perfect for a family of four because then you have four more for the next day. And um, and then they get finished with whipped cream. Mm. That's the one I, I, I used to make one when I was at GQ. I wrote about uh, on the Nestle chocolate bar in Paris. A friend would live there and you get the French chocolate, which is probably like I want to say in the 60s percent mm, okay. of sweet, bittersweet. Um, but yeah, and it's remarkable. It's just chocolate. Sugar, eggs, and that's it. And, yeah. and but by separating the eggs, you create that amazing sort of like chemistry of the fluffiness on one and the richness of the yolks and how it's all blended together. And the sort of the, the mousse is infused with the fluffy airiness of the of the whites. And yeah, you get that. It almost gets almost like chewy and yeah. And, and it's funny because the te- it's great when you first make it. If you lick the beaters, like it's delicious. But when it sets up, the texture changes so much, and it's just that has that completely different texture, and you know it dissolves slowly. It's great. Oh my god! Um, wow. All right, I'm hungry. I think we just we had like the makings of like three amazing dinner parties right here. Totally. Well, that was a lot of fun, guys. I'm hungry. I hope you are too. Uh, and for you listeners, you can find the recipes on bonappetit.com. Check them out. And thanks for listening, Carla. Music, Claire Saffitz. See you soon. Thanks, Adam. This podcast has been brought to you by Belle Cushing and Carrie Polis, with editing by Mitra Kaboli and additional help from Christina Che and Lily Sherman. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Greedies. We have new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to tell us anything about this or any episode, please email us at bonapetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.